All right. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to our second lecture for the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series for the fall of 2012. For those of you who are just coming in, there are empty seats. You'll have to sit in one, though. I can't allow you to sit on the ground or on a stair. Now, um, first of all, welcome to Stewart Observatory. This is our 87th year of providing free public lectures in astronomy. No, Chris, neither Chris nor I have been there for all 87 years, but we're proud of the history. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I would first like to let you know that our 21-inch telescope, named after Raymond D. White, Jr., is open for public viewing. And at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, it will be open until 10.30 tonight. If you'd like to go, big white building, go up two flights of stairs, and our friendly undergraduate telescope operators will be happy to show you whatever's up in the night sky. Also, at the conclusion of tonight's lectures, we will have a book signing. Uh, both of Professor Impey's books are on sale by the UA Campus Bookstore uh, for a reduced price, because I think they don't charge you sales tax. I think that's what happens. And um, it uh, out in the main lobby, and Professor Impey will be available for uh, signing those books that you have purchased. And we also have some light refreshment as well arranged for you. And if there are any students that are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment. I'll do it at this table down here at the conclusion of the question and answer period. So without further ado, uh, we're very happy to have our Deputy Director of Stewart Observatory, uh, Professor, actually distinguished Professor Christopher Impey. Uh, Professor Impey received his undergraduate degree from Imperial College in London. Then he received his PhD in, is it astronomy or physics? Astronomy at Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, he I remember I was a graduate student when Chris arrived here. It was sometime around 1985, 1986 sometime. So he's been here over 25 years. Uh, not only has he been given the distinction of distinguished professor, that's a distinction that's given to sort of the best teachers here at the university, but he's also well known for his efforts uh, in, in media of astronomy, teaching methods. He used to have a textbook, which has now gone online. I'm sure he'll tell you about some of the things he does online as well. And uh, without further ado, uh, he's going to tell us how it began. So Professor Impey. OK, thanks very much, Tom. My live? OK. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to see so many of you here. I'm glad I wasn't competing with something important like a presidential debate. Oh, actually, maybe there would have been more people. Who knows? So um, I'm going to talk about beginnings tonight. It's a, a good, positive subject. Uh, I sort of did things ass backward. I wrote a book on endings before I wrote a book on beginnings. And writing about endings is you know, it's a little bit gloomy, actually. So uh, it's not the kind of subject matter we're going to talk about tonight. We will, we will, uh, if you're, if you're tending that way, we will banish existential angst because we are going to talk about bright beginnings and where everything is possible from an iota of space time comes all of this and infinite possibilities. So it's a very upbeat, uplifting, a kind of subject matter. Um, and in the book and in this talk, I'll accelerate to the sort of frontier of the subject because I only have uh, less than an hour. 
But in the book, I sort of parse it into parts of the proximate universe and the metaphor or the governing principle here is look back time. The further out in space, the further back in time we look. And the stuff in the proximate, what a cosmologist would call the proximate universe, is, is stuff that's maybe the light is a few years old or a few centuries old or maybe a few million years old because that's a small fraction of the age of the universe. And then in cosmology, we move out to the more remote parts of the universe where we're seeing objects whose light has traveled for substantial fractions of the age of the universe. And that's really the, the wonder of the subject that you can use telescopes as time machines. And then at the end of the book, and in significant part in the last third of the talk, I'm going to talk about parts of this journey towards the beginning that are truly alien. They're remote from human experience. They're uh, almost unfathomable situations, physical situations, absolutely unfamiliar from terrestrial environment. And that's sort of the edge of the subject. Um, I'm also going to give an advance plug and uh, point out that at the top of the room, there are th this flyer is printed out, so you don't have to read all the words right now. But I'm going to venture into the brave new world of massive open online courses called MOOCs. You've probably read about those. They're uh, sprouting up all around the country. Um, and they're, they're all fully online courses, not intended for traditional pedagogy of you know, teaching for general education or three-unit classes. They're usually not for credit. So they're for people who have another a reason to be interested in the subject matter. Uh, and I'm going to try my hand at one of those in uh, mid-spring, mid not a full semester. It's about an eight-week course. So that's the first time I've done anything like that. It's going to be an adventure for everyone concerned. Um, and the URL where you can learn more about it or register if you want is, uh, is on that flyer. So I'm going to start with history, but I'm not going to do too much history, except it's important to know where we've been and how far we've come in cosmology in really just a century, just 100 years. It's a young subject. Astronomy is an old subject, thousands of years old. Uh, but cosmology is a young subject. However, the primordial questions of cosmology uh, are as ancient as human thought about the world we live in, the larger world we live in. Um, the simple questions of whether both space, either time or space, or finite or infinite, um, have been asked since the time of the Greek philosophers, who were the first to sort of put on a plate those very simple questions and think that we might be able to answer them. I'm sure before that, when we were hunter-gatherers, we had the same brains we have now without the veneer of civilization on top of our lifestyle. I'm sure people were thinking the same thing. What's going on with the sky and those stars and those objects? What is it all about? Is that stuff up there the same as the stuff on the Earth? They had no way of answering the question. The Greeks, of course, had no technology at all to throw at the situation. The telescope was 2,000 years from being invented. But they were uh, throwing a very new tool of logic and mathematics, the tools of logic and mathematics, at these simple questions. And they made surprising progress. And so there were thoughts even 2,000 years ago about whether what is the distinction between an infinite universe, because then it goes on forever, and what does that mean, or a finite universe, in which case it has an edge, and what, how do you understand an edge? Because it's an edge, an edge is a boundary, right, between something and something else. So it immediately begs, what is the something else? And the eternal in time is the same issue. If the universe is eternal in time, you know, there's nothing else to discuss. We're just a place 
in a river that's flowed forever in the past and will flow forever into the future. But if the universe has a beginning, has a beginning in time, instantly it begs the question, why was there a beginning and what caused the universe in the first place and you know, what was before the beginning? So almost either way you have a conceptual problem because the infinite time and space is not easy to understand, nor is a beginning or an end because it begs yet another question. So these questions were asked at a purely conceptual level for hundreds of years. But there were some very sophisticated arguments being brought to bear, arguments that have validity even into the age of Newton and the beginnings of cosmology. Um, they, I'll give you an example from the Greek time. Architect, this is such a famous woodcut, but the representation of that in anecdote from uh, 2,000 years ago was Archytas, a colleague of Plato, who was speculating about whether the universe should be finite or infinite. And he just said, imagine you go to the edge of the universe, and I'm a hunter, and I hurl a, a swift spear. Um, what do you imagine happens to that sphere? Does it, does it keep going, and then into what? Or does it hit something, and does it bounce back? Or, or what does it hit, and what's the nature of the thing that it hit? Um, so that was phrased in a sort of colloquial manner by an ancient Greek, but it's exactly the same question that Newton wrestled with uh, 2,000 years ago. Because Newton's universe was eternal, and it was infinite, and time and space were linear and independent of each other. Uh, and he knew, even at that time, that there were problems with that model. Uh, Newton had uh, a little logical conundrum. Having formulated this universal law of gravity that serves perfectly well, when Apollo 8 was halfway to the moon, Ed Anders got patched through on Christmas Day to his son, his, little, his young son, and his young said, Daddy, who's driving the spaceship? And Anders said, Isaac Newton's driving, son. <laughs> and, and Isaac Newton was driving. All the Apollo space probes, all the solar system probes, most of what all of us do in astronomy is done using Newton's law, which works in most situations is uh, just as well as you want. It's a great law of gravity. But when Newton was asked, what is this magical force that uh, projects across the vacuum of space instantaneously, apparently, uh, he just threw up his hands and said, I have no idea. Uh, he said it slightly better than that, but basically had no idea. And he knew that in a force law that is essentially infinite, because the force declines with the inverse square of the distance, an inverse square of a, a large number, one over a large number squared is small but never zero. So in an infinite universe, uh, at any point looking out, eventually you'll hit the light of something. And this was formulated more rigorously by Olbers and others a century or so after Newton died. But basically, in an infinite universe, whether it's filled with stars or galaxies, as long as it's filled with light bulbs, at some point your sight line will hit a light bulb. And since the, uh, the intensity of each light bulb or star or galaxy in the universe is going down at the same rate as the number of them is increasing as you go outwards, they trade off and the sky should be bright. And since gravity is an inverse square law, as light intensity is, it's the same with gravity. Gravity will be infinite. And Newton had no answer to this. And in fact, the answer to this only came with a better formulation of gravity by Einstein in the early 20th century. And I'm not going to talk about gravity theory really in this talk because I would, that would be the whole talk, more or less. So I'll just say that our understanding of what I'm going to talk about today is not possible using Newton's law. So, so while Newton's 
Newton's law of gravity works perfectly well for solar system work and space probes, and actually for most of astronomy. For the discussion of the universe as a single entity, it fails. It's, it's not adequate, and we need a better gravity law. And that gravity theory is Einstein's general theory of relativity, which couples space and time and declares that mass and energy can curve space and time. And that those the bizarre effects resulting from that coupling are behind the interesting phenomena of general relativity. And they apply to the universe as a whole. So the next part of the story, which is contemporaneous with the development of the theory of relativity, just a week ago I went to a conference at uh, Flagstaff at Lowell Observatory, which was celebrating the 100th anniversary, which was a week ago today, of the first measurement of galaxy redshifts. Not, as you might imagine, by Edwin Hubble, but by Vesto Slipher, who was a staff member of the Lowell Observatory. He was the man charged by, by Lowell uh, to you know, validate his detection of canals on Mars, to uh, run the hunt for Pluto, um, and he did those things. But the thing he's actually should be famous for, and isn't really, is not only the measurement of the first galaxy redshifts, but the, uh, the meta-discovery, shall I say, because he didn't publish it in a way clearly enough to get credit, of a relationship between redshift and distance for galaxies. Now that would make Hubble very famous, that discovery. Uh, so there was a little revisionism of the history books going on in Flagstaff last weekend. Um, not to give, not to take down Hubble or smack down Hubble at all. He's, of course, iconic in astronomy. He's duly and justly famous, and the Hubble Space Telescope named after him, no problem there. But sometimes people, even in the field and outside it naturally enough, uh, forget that his, what he did depended on the work of others. And some of the things he's credited with, he didn't actually do first, uh, which is an interesting situation. So before Hubble, we have a view of the universe with quotes around it from people like uh, William Herschel, working with, at the time, the world's largest telescopes, lovingly crafted by hand from walnut and teak and mahogany. And uh, another conference I went to a couple of years ago was held. The opening uh, ceremony was held in the house that Herschel lived in in Bath uh, for, for many years, actually. And it had a couple of Herschel, two real Herschel telescopes and a couple more replicas. And I, I don't care if you're a classical music aficionado and you've heard about Stradivariuses and all that stuff and fancy violins that cost millions of dollars. Forget about that. Strads are commonplace. There are hundreds of them. If you really want something special, own a Herschel. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's made of the same lovingly crafted wood. It has the, the, the harmony of the spheres if, instead of music that you can get through that. And I'm, I'm just jonesing to get my hands on a Herschel. But there's just not enough to go around. I'm, I'm going to have to steal it or, or, or come, over, come up with a hot one somehow because there's no way I'm ever going to buy one. Well, Herschel used his telescopes to map out the universe as he understood it, which was just one large system of stars, where the shape of that system of stars, the universe at the time, was not clear for a while. And then there was the breakthroughs. And the breakthroughs, I'm not going to give the full uh, story of the history, because it's a story inside a story. But let me just, having lodged the little asterisk by Hubble's uh, work, say that he indeed did depend on the work of others to find what he found, which was the distance to the nebulae, the fuzzy patches of light, 
cataloged in their thousands by Herschel, but with no understanding of their physical nature. And a vigorous debate arose in the second half of the uh, uh, 20th, 19th century and the early 20th century over were these fuzzy patches of light, some of which had spiral structure, were they distant systems of stars or island universes, um, or were they just clouds of gas and start forming stars in the periphery of the Milky Way. Uh, hundreds of years ago, Immanuel Kant in 1795 speculated they were island universes. Kant was a philosopher, a German philosopher with a lot of very clever ideas. There was no evidence to support his supposition. Uh, theory, in the absence of observation, you know, doesn't get too far. But the idea was out there that these very innocuous fuzzy patches of light, one of which you can see by the naked eye in the northern sky, a couple more in the southern sky, mostly too faint for the eye, um, were themselves vast universes, systems of stars. Um, and Hubble, through his work, did, of course, cement the measurement of the distance to many of these nebulae, initially dozens and then hundreds. And by the end of his career, he and his co-workers, uh, working at Mount Wilson in California, had uh, taken out our distance measurements in the universe uh, to literally expand the size of the known universe relative to just a big Milky Way by factors of thousands. Um, so that's an extraordinary, and the distances involved were hundreds of millions of light years. In other words, the most distant galaxies cataloged by Hubble and Hummison and others in the 1950s, their light had traveled for hundreds of millions of years to reach us. Uh, Hubble never used the phrase expanding universe. Um, in, in a sense, that was a good thing. He was rigorous. He didn't choose to interpret his data. He published the data. He showed relationships. He cemented the idea of galaxies as external objects. Um, but he was not familiar with the theory of gravity that would allow you to interpret his observations in terms of an expanding universe. That needed relativity. That needed Einstein. But this idea of ancient light is, of course, key to the idea of cosmology, to what we're going to get to very shortly. The idea that uh, distant light is old light. Now, that distant light is so proximate that we barely notice it. It streaks across from the back of the room. It's coming to my eye in nanoseconds or less. So this is imperceptible. The light is fleet foot, 300,000 kilometers per second. Um, you probably remember. Many of you from the time of Apollo, the, that strange hiccuping conversation with the astronauts, so that just that slightly little awkward pause from the one and a bit seconds travel to the moon and back of the radio signal. Well, that's still a very close distance, nearest object to us. The sun we see as it was eight minutes ago. We see nearby stars as they were a dozen or so years ago. And the most distant stars in the night sky a few centuries old, that light. Now, galaxies are on an entirely different scale. So the nearest galaxies are millions of light years away. Uh, and those are just the nearest galaxies. So game is on when you can start to see old light. Because it means, literally, that astronomers, you know, you don't have to invent science fiction. or do. Astronomers are basically lazy. They just sit around and look through telescopes. You don't want to get too much exercise doing that. But you've got a time machine. You're just your hands are sitting there on a time machine. The further out you look in space, the further back in time you look. And so I'm going to summarize you know, how far that game has taken us. And conceptually, everything we see in the nearby universe, and by that I mean what you see with your eye, is now. It's proximate in cosmic time. Um, if you 
the stars are recent, hundreds of years old. It makes no sense, as infuriating as it is to be told this, it makes no sense to ask what is Sirius doing now? What is the sun doing now? The sun has set, the sun is somewhere down there, but if an alien, evil alien empire had snuffed it out, it would be eight minutes before we got wind of what had happened. That's just the way it is. The fastest thing there is is light, and so we're just stuck getting old information. And by the time you get to the galaxies, you're talking about long ago, millions of years. And then the ancient universe is then being seen really at significant fractions of the entire age. And the number assigned to that now in cosmology with quite good accuracy, only a few percent, is 13.7 billion years. So let's just summarize before going back in time, because that's what I want to spend most of my time with. I want to summarize what the contents are, what are the material contents of the universe as revealed mostly through these large optical telescopes. Um, the normal matter is easy to inventory and is fairly easy to categorize. It's almost all uh, hydrogen and helium, the two most abundant elements. Everything else, which of course includes all of us and the planet we're standing on, all these heavy elements that make interesting uh, biochemical combinations and brains and so on, we are sort of trace relics or trace elements in the universe. It's abundantly the simplest two elements. And the round number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the power 80. And that is the largest pure true number in science, the largest real number. You can't count them all. Nobody has that much time, but it's a good estimate, and it's a real number out of science. Intriguingly, if you could Photons are fairly elusive, but if you could count the photons, you'd find there are about a billion of them for every atom in the universe. So although it's not obvious to us where the universe seems to be stuff, stars, galaxies, planets, uh, and then dark, space is dark and mostly empty, actually the universe is more filled with radiation than matter. Now that's not obvious to us now, but if we trace back time, and as we trace back time, that will become very prevalent and very important, actually, to the behavior of the universe. So there are extremely large number of photons. And those 10 to the power 80 atoms are parsed into about 100,000 billion billion stars, uh, which are clumped into roughly 100 billion galaxies. And that's how, that's how the galaxies, that's how the universe is sort of chunked up, with almost entirely empty space between them. The, the space of the universe occupies 99.999999% of the volume. Um, and I'll be at pains to note and explain a little bit more soon that those 100 billion galaxies, that's obviously a round number, uh, this true census may be more like 80 billion to the limit of optical telescopes, but who's quibbling a billion here or there? Um, this is a, the visible, observable universe. That is not to say that that's all the galaxies there are existentially. That's just the galaxies we can see. And that distinction is kind of interesting and important. Um, and if you actually, just to throw another little piece of information into this mix, you've probably been reading about the discovery of exoplanets and the, uh, you know, the fantastic success in drilling down towards Earth mass planets and the proximity to finding clones of Earth. Well, if you take, and that's all done in our backyard. That's done in what I've just called the near universe. Almost all those exoplanets are within a few hundred light years. But that's a fair sample of the galaxy. 
So if I just take the best information from exoplanet hunting and project it through our entire galaxy and to all the other galaxies in the universe, I come with, up with a, it's an estimate, but it's actually a fairly sturdy number as to how many, you know, to an order of magnitude, how many Earth-like planets there are in the universe, the visible universe. It's an interesting number, it's 10 to the 18, a billion billion. And at that point, I should really pause for 30 seconds, just let that sink in. A billion billion completely habitable worlds with billions of years for something to happen on them. They're petri dishes. Were they, are they all dead? Are we the only one that ended up with roomfuls of people listening to lectures like this? I don't know. But you've got to admit, the odds are pretty thin. That, that, that's either going to make us, there's only logically two possibilities. Either it's exceptional what happened on this planet, truly exceptional, that it led to sentient beings with brains and telescopes that wondered about their place in the universe, or it's happened elsewhere, maybe a lot elsewhere. And wouldn't that be cool to figure that out and then find it? That's a whole other story. But cosmology sets the table for life on the universe with this phenomenal number. So what do we see in the universe when we look deep? This is a little pan across the Hubble deep field, the, the uh, ultra deep field, the deepest image of the sky, Hubble t Space Telescope staring for a couple of weeks at one patch of the sky. The entire Hubble deep field is about the size of the head of a pin held at arm's length. And this little view will just track across little a little fractional path of that head of a pin. So that's, remember what a small part of the sky you're looking at, and remember that our sampling of cosmology is such that we don't see anything different in that part of the sky, or that part of the sky, or that part. So whatever you see in this tiny little fraction of a head of a pin, you multiply by the number of times you fit the head of a pin on the sky, and the same thing you'll see in all those other places too. And most of these images are things that are, this is about a billion light years away. This is about three or four billion light years away, eight or nine. And at the limit of your vision, the faintest things, 10 billion times fainter than the eye can see, about 11 or 12 billion light years, a good fraction of the age of the universe. And the thing is littered with them. That's what 100 billion galaxies means. That's where it comes from, from extrapolating this number. And it's hard not to look at a picture like this and referencing my last point and imagine that on some or many or even all of these galaxies there isn't someone or something looking back at us, maybe. So the Copernican principle is held. It's been a very robust idea in science. The Copernican principle is basically the mediocrity principle. It was a statement in the time of Copernicus that we were not the center of the universe. That was a, a dramatic and earth, literally earth-shaking, earth-displacing uh, position to take. At the time of Copernicus, it was uh, very provocative, it was very controversial. The result of that was books by Galileo and others being on the banned list. It went against church teachings in Europe. Um, so that was a, an upsetting idea that we weren't the center of the universe. But of course, since then, we've just followed that logic. And at every stage, we found nothing special about our environment. So as we look out in concentric circles and inspect our cosmic neighborhood or environment, 
and then look elsewhere, we see similar environments. We see galaxies like the Milky Way, we see stars like the Sun, we see neighborhoods like the solar neighborhood, we see groups of galaxies like those you might find in a, in a sort of 100 million light year sphere around the Milky Way. Nothing exceptional about any part of it. There, there's nothing special and we're part of this very large universe. So uh, that's a, a suitable sense of ignominy. Now, maybe from that ignominy we can still wrench the fact that we think we're special. Well, we obviously act like we're special, but are we special? I think that the last bastion of our specialness is indeed our biology. The last bastion of our specialness is the fact that we've built telescopes and spacecraft and we have art and music and culture. And I'm not even, we don't even have that turf uniquely because if you get into some of the other smart animals on the planet, then the, the, the boundaries start to get a little fuzzy. I mean, it's clear that dolphins don't have telescopes, so we must be smarter than them, surely. You know, I mean, that's, if we're, we're gonna, we're just, we'll just choose our criterion for deciding who's smart. Um, so maybe that, maybe we're special in that still, and maybe not. If Copernican principle holds throughout, then we live in a biological universe, and we should not be surprised at all to find other biological experiments. But as you've got a hint of, the universe is a vast place. And uh, this fact that our exoplanet census is really only looking in the backyard gives us a sense of, of how hard it is going to be to find uh, you know, an Earth-like situation where something interesting happened if, that, if that's rare. If that's rare, then those things may be thousands of light years away. So let's follow the thread of cosmology back to the Big Bang. Um, since it's, it, this is such a nice old analogy, of course, everyone uses it. I was glad to find it being used in the 1940s, the expanding balloon. It's, uh, the poet Robert Frost said, all analogies are imperfect, and that is the beauty of them. And as, of course, he was right about poetry and about scientific analogies. So, so any analogy I can give you as a crutch to understand the very unusual situation of the universe as a whole, you should recognize it as flawed and don't blame me because there are no perfect analogies for bizarre situations of space and time. Um, so the best we can do is approach an intuitive sense of this. I once, I have a colleague, a colleague who works here at Stewart and then half his time in Rome, he's a Jesuit astronomer and cosmologist, a relativist actually, a theorist, and uh, we were just having coffee and, and he works on general relativity which I you know, painfully suffered through as a grad student and you know, people in our field have to take general relativity and it's hard. And then the number of professionals in the field is quite small because uh, it's hard. And so I asked Bill, I said, Bill, um, and you may find it surprising or not that a Jesuit priest is studying relativity and applying it to the first fractions of a second after the Big Bang. Well, those Jesuits are kind of radicals, so they, they don't have any problem with that. They're, they're intellectually suspect just because they're Jesuits, so thinking that way is just part of the deal. So I, I asked Bill, I said, and he knew exactly what I meant, I said, Bill, how many people get GR here? And he, he thought about it, actually, and he said, 12. <laughs> and I, it was a very precise number, I didn't ask, I didn't ask him, who they were because I didn't want to risk embarrassing someone by saying, oh, you're not one of them, you know? <laughs> um, so it's hard. So like, let, 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 let's us all off the hook, right? So none of us need to feel bad, including me, 
for not fully getting GR, which is what describes the universe as a whole, and black holes and all that other stuff. So, so there we go. That, that's why we can all just breathe. Okay, we don't have to. We don't have to get GR. It's fine. There's only 12 people. Um, so what Hubble did, and Hubble didn't understand GR. So yeah, let's take him down another peg. You know, <laughs> that's fine. He barely was aware of the theory at the time. Einstein visited Mount Wilson, and and he sort of asked Hubble, you know, have you read my papers? And Hubble sort of, well, I don't know. You know, they were in German. He said, no, no, they were translated. Did you read them in English? No, he didn't. So, um, but Hubble was very good at measuring spectra. Uh, and he was very good. He had the benefit three times in his career of, in, of starting to use the new world's largest telescope, culminating the 200-inch at Mount Palomar. And so he took a succession of spectra of these galaxies. And Slipher, of course, as I've alluded to, took the first few dozen that Hubble did his initial work with. Um, and what he found was that the spectral features of galaxy, normal galaxies, which is essentially just the superposition of a lot of stars. So if you took a spectrum of a, of a, a spectrum of a star, you'd see similar features from hydrogen, calcium, sodium, the trace elements in the atmosphere of the star. Galaxy is just the sum of a lot of stars, so it shows the same features. Those features were shifted to longer wavelengths, or redward, relative to those same spectral features or elements in the lab, in, in spectroscopy in the lab. And that redshift was almost ubiquitous because of the dozens and then hundreds of galaxies Hubble measured, essentially all, almost all of them were redshifted and none were blue shifted. And if interpreted as a Doppler shift, that would mean these things are all moving away from us. And at substantial velocities. So this one is 5% of the speed of light. It's fast, very fast. Uh, and, none, and nothing moving towards us. That was a dramatic discovery. Um, and the second part of his discovery was armed with distances, and that was a difficult trick. Measuring a spectrum was fairly easy, though he still needed large telescopes to do it. Measuring the distance to a galaxy, which is another story I'm not going to tell in detail now, um, took another lot of extra work. And when you had both pieces of information, you, he found a linear correlation between them, which told him that the, ga the further away a galaxy was, the faster it was moving away from us. And that's, that's a striking relationship. Um, and, and it was found by Hubble uh, for a piece of the universe that's actually almost smaller than the width of the red line. So Hubble's original data is, is back in here. And what I'm showing you is how much better we've done than Hubble in the you know, 80 years since Hubble was doing his work. So we've extended Hubble's originally, original relationship, the Hubble diagram, the Hubble law, as it was called, uh, by orders of magnitude further out into space. These are now millions of light years. So we're looking back again, a billion or more light years in space. Um, so how do we understand the Hubble law, the Hubble relationship? Well, he didn't use the term expanding universe, but armed with the general theory of relativity, which is not happy with the static universe the ancient static universe of Newton, uh, general relativity is a has solutions that are dynamic. They're either contracting or expanding. And so Einstein famously kicked himself for missing the prediction of the expanding universe, because he did the theory in 1916. Hubble published his relationship in 1929. And Einstein realized he really should have predicted that the universe was expanding, rather than just providing the theory that was subsequently used to understand it. Um, so what's going on is that 
the fact that there's a Hubble relation does have, says nothing about special position for us in the universe. Uh, at first glance, us, everything moving away from us means we're at the center. Copernicus was wrong. We have a special place. It's all about, and that maybe is relieving it again. It's like, oh, it really is all about us. Oh, good, that's right. I, I didn't like being ignominious for that short amount of time I was ignominious. I wanted to be special, and now we are special. No, you're not special. It's not, it's not special because if we are the red galaxy and the galaxies around us move away, and we have a two-dimensional analogy here on the sheet because three dimensions is harder to represent. Um, we measure expansions. at You measure an instantaneous velocity and distance, so you don't actually get to see it playing out. But you're sampling a, a film like this, a little animation like this, and, a, and you can see the relativity of the situation, that if you were Edwin Hubble sitting on a star in the outskirts of this galaxy that we'll call the Milky Way, measuring distances and velocities of galaxies, you'll predict, predict uh, a linear, you'll measure a linear slope. But if you're uh, someone called Utharg, who lives as an alien living on a, in a star in a globular cluster in this galaxy, you'll measure the same thing. And you'll get all excited and you'll publish Utharg's law and you'll get really pissed off when the, some guy called Hubble invented the, you know, found the same thing and called it after himself. So either they're both wrong well, they're both right, you know, which is it? And the answer is they're neither, neither of them are right and neither of them are wrong. There is no center of the expansion. There's no way to define it. Uh, the second component of what's going on is that everything isn't really linear and smooth entirely because relativity builds into it curvature of space-time caused by mass energy. And uh, although that may be subtle on the small scale, on the cosmic scale it can be substantial. So the presence of a large amount of material in the universe, 100, mil 100 billion galaxies, it's quite a lot of stuff, can cause space-time curvature on cosmic scales. And so that's right there in the theory. That's something you expect to see, and it's something people have hoped to measure or wanted to measure for a long time. And um, again, just to be clear about the expansion, with the, we'll overwork the analogy. Um, everything is moving away from everything else. The universe, in this case a two-dimensional universe, can be curved. And if you were confined to a small patch of a very large balloon, you might look around and not be clear that it's curved. Or you could look at the surface of the Earth out on an ocean, out on the desert floor, and it's not obviously curved because you're confined and your measurements are confined to a small fraction of a globally curved space. Similarly, in cosmology, the curvature can be very subtle on small scales, and, but still dominant and present on large scales. The other thing that's really important is that this, having alluded to the Doppler effect, this is not a Doppler effect. It's still a big confusion from students of astronomy taking it for the first time, that they make the analogy with Doppler shift and sound waves getting stretched out as the source moves away from you and compressed as it moves towards you. Doppler shift applies for light waves or sound waves, but this is not a Doppler shift because the Doppler shift references uh, a situation where you can compare signals between observers. The galaxies are situated in expanding space and are being carried apart by expanding space-time. There's no external medium. This is the universe in three dimensions is, is doing this. And so if you look at it again, It's a very different conceptual situation. The object's moving ballistically through an external grid that you can reference of space and time, or the entire edifice, the entire space-time 
matrix, if you like, expanding, and the galaxy is just hapless victims being carried along by the expansion. That's the cosmological redshift. That's what Hubble measured. And that's absolutely distinct from the Doppler shift. It's not the same. Another consequence of this theory, this idea of the expanding universe, is that we, I was careful to say 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe because we haven't seen an edge. What's actually happened as we, as the telescopes get more powerful, we run out of time, not out of space. We look so far back in time, since the universe did have a beginning in the Big Bang, we get to the point before which there was essentially no light. There were no light bulbs to look at, to measure. So we don't reach an edge, we don't fall off an edge. The Greek dilemma is never posed because that's not the situation. We probably, there may not be an edge to physical space. There's no evidence for it, and there's not even a theoretical reason it should exist. So the universe has no center and isn't expanding into anything, has a boundary in time, operationally, and maybe not in space. And it's all getting very squirrely and zen-like, and it doesn't even sound scientific anymore, but this is actually how it works in the theory, too. I mean, if you crunch the math, and uh, it, it'll, it'll still be this way. So let's look back as far as we can towards first light. This is the little graphic of the expanding universe, which went through a very rapid early phase of expansion that I will allude to very briefly, because I'm sort of doing a thumbnail sketch of the universe in the time available. Uh, most of the cosmic history is a history of sedate expansion, originally decelerating due to dark matter, subsequently accelerating due to dark energy, two things I'm literally just going to put out there and not talk about, because those are entire subjects in their own right. Uh, I'm just going to drill back towards that origin point as well as I can. So when people want to understand the universe, they now actually simulate it. So we turn to simulation. We have observations, very powerful through large telescopes. We have an excellent and robust theory of gravity. And the third leg of this sort of tripod of scientific method is simulations with computers, where we can put a universe in a computer and see that we can understand it. So if we imagine the universe did have a beginning as a hot, dense state, we can simulate that in a computer, put in all the ingredients, and like in an oven, you know, just put it on the right temperature, come back after 13.7 billion years and see if we get something like we see. Or if it's an ugly, horrible mess and we throw it away and tell the guests to go home. There's nothing to eat. And what we get is actually reassuringly right. So this is a little, this is a simulation where the expansion, which would otherwise be 30-fold due to Hubble expansion, has just been factored out. Just so, because it's too hard to look at something that's expanding as within its structure forms. So in this case, and in general in these simulations, the expansion is taken out. And in it, you'll see the evolution from 100 million years after the Big Bang to the present day of a cube that's 300 million light years on a side, done in a computer. And this is actually just dark matter in this computer simulation, because most of the stuff of the universe is dark matter. It outnumbers the normal, the 10 to the 80 atoms I alluded to by a factor of six or seven. And a test of the theory of the expansion of the universe, of what it's made of, of the expansion history, is do, do your simulations from smooth initial conditions, because everything we think was hot and smooth and then gravity did its thing, acting steadily over time. It, as long as it gives you something that looks like the way the galaxies are distributed now, then it's a, you check, check it off. It's, it's, it agrees. This is the same thing rotating, so you get a sense of the three-dimensional structures that evolve. And you can see that from smooth initial conditions, with just that single force of gravity acting, 
and it's Newtonian gravity used in these simulations, you generate this gorgeous topology of voids and filaments, clusters, where each little dot will, in the present-day universe, have a galaxy at it. And so we match simulations like this against our modern redshift surveys that have hundreds of thousands of galaxies, and it works pretty well. So this is a sort of secondary validation of the whole idea of an expanding universe, of initially smooth and hot turning into cool and clustered by gravity. It works. And this is, I'm summarizing, of course, a lot of research in just a, a few pictures here. So how far have we taken this? Well, if you take the Hubble deep field and the ultra deep field, and especially infrared observations of it, we've got to a redshift of about 10, which is, means the universe was 10 times smaller and 10 times hotter than it is now. And that's almost first light. That's almost to the point where the very first galaxies were forming or congealing out of the gas. And that's why we don't see an edge in space. Uh, there, there's nothing to see after that because it's before that. And that's, there is a time before which there were no stars, there were no galaxies. And astronomers are putting vast effort, actually, and vast expense into pinning down when those first things happened. If you've heard of the James Webb Space Telescope, price tag $8.5 billion and climbing, not, not, uh, not necessarily a happy story in astronomy because it's a, a big price tag for a telescope, but it's one of its prime goals is to, is to nail this down. When did this happen? Um, so here's the deepest image of the sky ever made, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field again. And now we can assign redshifts or distances to the bulk of these galaxies, sometimes by estimation methods rather than spectroscopy. And so we have literally surveyed the bulk of the universe over 95% of its age. That story has now been told. Done. <laughs> And there's some, uh, there's some interesting stuff going on here. I'm going to skate over this pretty quickly because it's a little weird. But uh, again, in the normal universe, traveling, sending light signals through the solar system, where you can synchronize clocks, everything is fairly regular and understandable. If we're talking about two galaxies whose light, you know, two of those very distant galaxies seen a good fraction of the age of the universe ago, at the highest redshift we can observe galaxies, the light from those, that, that, that object was receding three times the speed of light from us at the time the light was emitted. 
Now, of course, the Earth didn't even exist then, so you got to you know, use a little projection, but the Milky Way existed. So at the time, the Milky Way and a very distant galaxy that we can observe with a telescope, at the time their light was emitted, that those objects were receding at superluminal speeds. And what happened then was like in the little cartoon. As the universe decelerated due to all the matter, the light traveling at its fundamental velocity of 300,000 kilometers per second was eventually able at some point even to stand still like treading water before it started to overcome the decelerating expansion and eventually arrive asymptotically at its destination at 300,000 kilometers per second. How cool is that? So, and you might say, well, how can the universe do that? Isn't there a speed limit? Wasn't that another thing that Einstein said if he's such a clever guy? Well, yes, but that was his special theory of relativity. The general theory of relativity governs the universe and there's no speed limit. You can look at those equations as much as you want, and I swear there's no speed limit written into those equations. Um, so the universe can expand as fast as it damn well wants, basically, and it did. It expanded very quickly. And the consequence of that, the fact that there are things which were being dragged away from us faster than light can travel means that it's a standard part of the model. Vanilla Big Bang, nothing esoteric, nothing weird, no lunatic fringe theorizing. It's absolutely standard that the physical universe, all that there is, is bigger than the observable universe, that 100 billion galaxies. How much bigger? We have no idea. Because again, we're not limited in our view by space, we're limited by time. So that's an absolutely inevitable consequence of the theory. So let's go back to the beginning. The, the biggest landmark of the beginning is the microwave background radiation that I'm sure you've heard of. This is a picture of the entire sky in microwaves where it's exaggerated with color, but basically the reddest patches are about a thousandth of a degree Kelvin warmer than the bluest patches. Actually, a hundred, sorry, a hundred thousandth of a degree warmer than the bluest patches. So this is overwhelmingly the same temperature, the same emission everywhere in the sky. It's just grossly amplified here so we can see the fine grain of the structure and the detail, but it's really smooth. And what it is, is a baby picture of the universe. If we analogize to a human lifespan, this radiation is seen. This is seeing the infant universe when if it was you, you were you know, a few hours old, basically. Um, because it's from 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Think of that, 380,000 out of 13.7 billion. That is very early. Remember, the oldest galaxies we can see are about a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. This is a few hundred thousand years. So it's a thousand times earlier in time, relatively. So it's a fantastic tool of the early universe. And, and this, the math is really simple. The universe then, because the redshift of this information is a, is a thousand in round numbers, that means the universe was a thousand times smaller and a thousand times hotter and a, billion, a thousand cubed or a billion times denser when this radiation was emitted. This really is a bizarre situation to be seeing. And the fact that there is an edge, the reason that we see it as an edge to our vision, what's beyond the microwave background? We don't see beyond the microwave background. It's like the fog into which we cannot see. It's like the edge of a cloud. Because with the edge of a cloud, you're just looking at where the water density is low enough that the light doesn't bounce around. It travels freely. Inside a cloud, it's not much different density than outside a cloud when you fly in a plane. And the same with the universe. The microwave background represents the place where formally atoms became neutral. Their electrons attached to the protons and stopped scattering light. 
and therefore we see it as the edge to our vision. And beyond that, we can't see. We can't look with radiation earlier than that. But it's an incredible feat to be able to see it and to see it with such precision with satellites. Um, and again, remember, we're looking at radiation that when it was emitted was feeble red photons. It had a temperature of 3,000 Kelvin. So it would be dull red. The universe, if you could have been back then, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, would have been glowing dull red. And in the intervening billions of years, those photons were stretched by factors of thousands from being dull red photons to being microwave photons that we can barely notice. They're all around us. They're in this room, but they're not very easy to perceive or detect. They are literally everywhere. And when we look everywhere in space, we see them. Because remember, the Big Bang isn't a place. It's a when. It's not a place. And so it's everywhere. It's all around us. Because there's no center, so it can't be in any one direction. We see it in every direction in the sky we look. So it was no place in every way. There, I'm getting Zen on you again. It's all very Zen stuff, you know. Uh, and if you really want to have a good evening, try and find an old TV, one you probably put out in the garage. Bring it back in. Bring one of those old tube TVs in and tune it between stations because about 1%, a couple of percent of the phosphor interactions are with the microwave background radiation. And, and I am almost certain that it's better than the crap on the 200 cable channels <laughs> that, you, that you're paying for, you know? So just stay in one evening and watch the Big Bang. Now, your spouse may see that and think you're kind of weird, but that's okay. You know, it's just fine. Just watch the Big Bang. And so you can watch the Big Bang. You can even hear the Big Bang. This is a, a sonification created by Mark Whittle at the University of Virginia. And this is actually taking the acoustic waves, the, the sort of oscillations in the plasma of, of the very hot gas and particle soup of the early universe and turning what actually happened in the first Hundred, few hundred th uh, thousand years of expansion into sound waves. And it's speeded up so those few hundred thousand of years go into about seven seconds. And it's uh, scaled up by 42 octaves to audible range. But this was a real, these are real sound waves. I'm not being metaphorical. They really were sound waves. They're so there you are, you've, you've seen the Big Bang, you've heard the Big Bang, you're breathing the Big Bang, there are about a million of those microwaves in every breath you take, it's all around us. Guys, don't worry, you're not being sterilized by it, it's microwaves, but the radiant intensity is about 10 to the minus 5 watts, so it's about a 10 millionth of a light bulb's worth of microwaves everywhere. It's not, nobody's getting uh, sterilized by this, but uh, it is there. So let's get to the last part, to the early part. And for people who work on the early universe, everything else is an anticlimax. All those stars and galaxies and planets and people, yeah, that's boring. What's really fun is what happens early on. And so the goal of cosmology is to get as close to the origin as possible. And how close can we get and still be tethered in physics that we can understand? That's given here. This is a logarithmic plot that shows time since the Big Bang against temperature of the universe. And the limit of terrestrial physics is in the Large Hadron Collider, so big accelerator, is quite extraordinary. In an instance, in the Large Hadron Collider, you can simulate temperatures that were realized in the first, uh, uh, it's a thousandth of a nanosecond uh, of the Big Bang. So, so the theorizing about the early universe, which may seem extremely esoteric and fringy, 
is absolutely rooted in physics that we can test really back that far. I mean, it's not unhinged. That. Beyond that, or before this 10 to the minus 12 seconds, then all bets are off because we haven't tested physics that early. And of course, there's a secondary issue of whether the laws of physics have changed. Can't really comment on that. And comprehending the singularity is clearly hard. So, um, I, and I'm out now outside my pay grade, so I'm going to get a little professional help. It all began at the time when there was no time in a space where there was no space, when nothing became something, and today's universe was teenier than the teeniest tiny atomic particle. Of course, with the standard model of quantum chromodynamics, QCD, and the grand unified theory guts, there's an obvious way to create the universe, ex nihilo, vacuum genesis. With continual quantum fluctuations in the vacuum, sooner or later there's one with enough potential energy to create the universe big enough to pinch off a bubble of space-time that expands. Now, naturally, you're asking, why does it expand? Spontaneous symmetry breaking with the shape of the potential curve giving energy to the false vacuum like a marble rolling down that little hill you've seen in the bottom of a wine bottle. So, creation of nothing, which means the universe could be the ultimate free lunch. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why is the net barren number of the universe so close to zero? Guts answer this if you choose the right parameters to distinguish between matter and antimatter. But there still is the question of why the arrow of time points in the particular direction it does, and why we have a past and a future, and not a future and a past. Well, if we are correct, that region that became our universe was presumably just one of many, if you think about it, an infinite number that each grew at totally different times from some microscopic bubbles into regions trillions of times larger than what we call the visible universe, and that, of course, leaves an infinite number of universes waiting to be born. Now, this inflationary theory predicts that the universe must have a density exactly equal to the critic density. So it has to lie just between the cusp between internal expansion and eventual contraction. But since the density of the matter that we see when we look out and map the galaxy falls far short of the critical density, to close the universe, most of the matter must be matter we don't see. Naturally, you're asking, just what and where's the matter? Here, experts differ. If we could use the QCD and unifies electroweak theory, we get the same old standard model of elementary particles. But what about being bold, being on the forefront, going where Einstein never tried and trying supersymmetric theories and linking gravity to the equations? Ha <laughs> ha! Well, then, you can use the Dirac operators, but of course you end up with ten dimensions in the universe. Now, if you look around, you must realize that at least six of these dimensions must be compactified, rolled up like a sock, and every familiar type of particle has a supersymmetric partner. For every photon, a photino, every graviton, a gravitino, every gluon, a gluino, but that's the hot dark matter possibility, but of course we can't rule out the cold dark matter either. Most of the universe could be in black holes, burnt out stars, W particles, but the best candidate for cold dark matter is cosmic strings, one dimensional with some strings looped, others infinitely long, every millimeter more massive than Mount Everest. So, is all this mere talk, or can we experiment to distinguish between hot dark matter and cold dark matter models once and for all, which will tell us what the universe is really made of, and whether it will go on forever, or the Big Bang will be followed billions of years from now by a big crunch and then a big bounce. Well, it could be that everything we see is just a sort of light frosting on the cosmic cake, if you'll pardon my homely analogy, and we simply don't know yet what we're talking about, in the strictly technical sense, of course. But of course, we are still working on the question of why everything is the way it is, and whether the galaxies have in fact had, had time to appear the way they do, and why they have the sizes and masses that they have, but you can't expect to resolve that big picture until you clear up the little picture of particle physics, now can you? Questions? Okay. So I'm, uh, I'm going to wrap up with the frontier of the subject briefly. And you should just imagine, uh, no, imagine everyone brought a pinch of salt and we could make a nice pile of salt. That's how much salt you should take this with. This is, uh, everything I've said up to this point is absolutely solid, big bang, early hot universe, a web of evidence supporting it. Epistemologically, I do believe that theory is as valid, is as well supported by evidence and data as the theory of natural selection. Um, but pushing it to the limit, you get to places where you don't know. In this case, what we're talking about is a unity in nature where the only place, as I alluded to in that graph, which showed what the Hadron Collider limit corresponded to in temperature, we're heading towards a situation where the only way we can validate any theoretical idea is by the early universe itself. So we would have to look for signatures of microscopic physics 
in the universe, in the Big Bang, at the very earliest stages. And we don't quite know how to do that yet, but that's the game. That's where the frontier is headed. So let me just remind you that once the universe was smaller than Adam, follow the Big Bang theory back, and that's what it projects. It projects a singularity, actually, an infinite cusp of density and temperature, which is unphysical. It's a sign your physical law has broken down. And the other thing that's predicted with fair reliability from the theory is that the forces of nature we see as being very disparate in their strength. This difference between the strong nuclear force in an atom and the gravity force is 38 orders of magnitude. We've already seen in accelerators that two of the four forces of nature melt together. And there's hints of that second merger, although it's far beyond accelerators. The inference is that there's one super force that was realized at the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang where quantum theory and gravity merge. There is no physical theory that can reconcile gravity and quantum theory. Einstein spent, as you probably know, a decade of his life trying to do it. Others have tried since. It's a very active research agenda. Um, it does, however, seem that there are many hints that the underlying physics was beautiful, simple, and symmetric, which is more of a mathematical term than an aesthetic term, and that as the universe cooled and evolved, the forces crystallized out with different properties and characteristics and strengths to be distinct today. We see hints of this underlying symmetry, but to get to the full superforce is going to require theories that we're still working with. So we want a theory of everything. Everybody wants a theory of everything, right? You can, until we have one that's validated and published in Nature and refereed articles, everyone's allowed their own theory of everything. That's, that's a Bill Mayer, new rule. Everyone's allowed a theory of everything. In the meantime, the theorists in physics are working on string theory, which hints at a deeper level of structure, which goes, which start, takes as its starting point the fact that we know protons and neutrons are not fundamental particles. In 30, 40 years ago, we showed they were made of quarks. Electrons and quarks, however, have been assumed to be fundamental, point-like. And that's not physical either, because they have mass, they have charge, and they can be point-like. So theorists have felt liberated to speculate about tiny one-dimensional entities called strings that are the true fundamental state of all matter. And they've gone quite a way down this very difficult road of building a theory based on strings. When you do the string theory, it makes general relativity sort of pale into the background as, as kind of chump stuff, easy, easy stuff because it turns out that you need multidimensional space, uh, typically 9, 10, or 11-dimensional space-time, of which the three dimensions of space we inhabit plus one of time are the only visible large-scale manifestations. The other dimensions are in, on an invisibly small and an impossibly high energy scale. And so we've now realized, out of the Big Bang, the idea is quite clear that the universe started as a quantum level event. That's a simple projection back to the beginning. And quantum is weird. <laughs> it upset Einstein very much, you know. All that damned quantum jumping. It spoiled his idea of God, which I tell you frankly is the only idea of Einstein's I never understood. He believed in the same God as Newton, Causality, nothing without a reason, but now one thing led to another until causality was dead. Quantum mechanics made everything finally random. A thing could be this way or that way. The mathematics deny certainty, they reveal only probability and chance. And Einstein couldn't believe in a god who threw dice. <laughs> uh, he should have come to me, I would have told him.
Listen, Albert, he threw you. Look around. He never stopped. So when you put these ideas together of the universe as a quantum event because it occurred in a situation of energy and density where quantum phenomena dominated, you put it together with string theory, then you have a mechanism for creating multiple universes because those speckles in that microwave map are essentially uh, quantum scale events inflated by the early rapid expansion to the size of galaxy seeds. So galaxies grew from quantum seeds. That's a part of the current theory of cosmology, which includes inflation. Um, and that's, of course, a basis for multiple realizations of the universe. There's quantum phenomena are random, and so you could postulate that the little bubble of space-time that inflated into our universe was one of a set of quantum phenomena, randomly different, uh, producing different laws of physics. And when the string theorists get going with their calculations, they will tell us that there are 10 to the power 500 possible different energy states in string theory. And that's a pretty heft, that's a hefty basis for, for a multiverse. I mean, only if you know, some tiny fraction of those energy states manifest as universes, that's still plenty of universes to go around. There's even a scenario, which is the last scenario I'm going to mention, which actually finesses the Big Bang itself. Because out of these multidimensional space times, you can posit the Big Bang as a collision event between higher dimensional space times which can happen in a cyclic manner, spawning new universes that expand, either dissipate or recollapse. And then those higher dimensional brains, as they're called in this theory, uh, they could be four-dimensional, five-dimensional, six-dimensional. They're just higher dimensional. And we're an embedded three-dimensional space within them. They actually lead. It's the collision of these higher dimensional entities that provides the impulsive force for the Big Bang itself and the subsequent expansion here visualized as three dimensions collapsed into a sheet. And although it sounds wild and bizarre, the theorists have actually worked with this theory enough to replicate in this very advanced theory conventional features of our universe. The first task of a new theory is to explain everything you explained with the old theory. That's what Einstein had to do with general relativity, explain everything that Newton explained, and then some more stuff. And these people haven't got there, but they're trying. And it's a very exciting idea, because it means there's no Big Bang doesn't have to be the beginning at all. Now I'm really out of my pay grade, so for, I'm going to get a last piece of help on this one. So much to talk about. I haven't, I haven't spoken to you in a little while. Yeah. What have you, what have you uh, been doing with yourself lately? You I know, we'll get to the movie in a second, but just I'm talking about you, the man. What are you doing? A lot of things. I've been doing a lot of reading, actually, lately. Reading? Yeah. 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 Like what, what, uh, what, kind, of, what kind of stuff are you reading? Mostly road signs. Uh, <laughs> prescriptions. Make sure I take them right. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, it's a good idea. I, yeah, I took a whole bottle of uh, what's that called Vicodin? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it just it looked yummy. <laughs> you know. Uh huh. And uh, that's when not I, a good idea. Yeah. After I plowed my bulldozer into a store, I, I woke up in the hospital and uh -huh. I just thought, you know, I got to start reading more. Reading more. Yeah. Now, uh, seriously, I'm just curious, and I think a lot of us are. What, what do you seriously like to read? Like just I'm like in the book world with science. Really? I'm fascinated with science. It's incredible. Have you heard about the new brain theory? The, uh, uh, it, who's, whose brain theory is this? It's, it's, it's Stephen, Stephen Hawking has been... Uh, Stephen Hawking? Yeah, talking about this new brain theory about the universe and uh, opposed to the Big Bang theory and they're, they're coming out with some new concepts. It's really exciting. And you actually the read erotic uh, universe. Have you heard about this? The Ip, say it again. Ip, it's very difficult to say. 
the Ikpirotic universe. Wow, that's amazing yeah. that you're reading that. Well, stuff. the model, see, the model we have now, Conan, is based on the idea that our Big Bang universe was created from the collision of two three-dimensional worlds moving along a hidden extra dimension. But conceptually, the Ikpirotic <laughs> model is very different. There is no inflation or rapid change happening at all. The approach to collision takes place very slowly over an exceedingly long period of time. It's quite fascinating that the rapid change and very slow change can produce nearly the same effects. The difference <laughs> results in one distinctive observational prediction, though. The inflationary cosmology predicts a spectrum of gravitational waves that may be detectable in the cosmic microwave background. The Ikpirotic model, however, predicts no gravitational waves effects should be observable in the cosmic microwave background. And I'm just so relieved by this because I've been... No, really. Incredible. I, I've, so, I've been trying and trying to tell this to people for years. Really? You know, I've been, I've been trying to drill it through their heads, but they don't listen to me, you know? They called me mad. <laughs> they laughed at me. so frustrating for me because the, the moment I wrote it, uh, read, read it, I, I knew it was important and I wanted to tell them, but, you know, what can you do? Well, I had to go now. I'm very busy watching Dumb and Dumber. I hope I can do You truly are a genius. No, you're a genius. No, you are. <laughs> no, you are. No, you are. <laughs> no! You are. You are to infinity. <laughs> you got me there, Steve. That was insane. That was incredible. So, to summarize and conclude, you've got the message that the curved space out there contains galaxies, which contain stars, which are occasionally, maybe more frequently than we think, orbited by brains, and other stuff, which is made of atoms, and those are made of strings, if you believe, if you believe all of that. But really, it is all from this iota of space-time. In a chronology, we've traced back almost the entire 13.7 billion years. And although there's some huge mysteries that I've almost skated over, dark matter, dark energy, I think the totality of figuring this out, of being small entities in a universe and using our brains to not only deduce the properties of the particles of which we're made, but the ensemble, this vast ensemble within which we live, is something that we should legitimately be proud of.
right, thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to give Chris time to get over to the uh, lobby so that you can sign your books. He can sign your books and answer your questions. I would just like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight. Professor Emeritus Nick Wolf will be here to talk about life, which is a consequence of astronomy. Um, the telescope is open. We have refreshments for you over in the main lobby. Professor Impey will be over there to sign books that you have purchased. And uh, I will stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Professor Impey.